Previously on NAPCAST. You know, there are folks that because of um, failures in the adoption system, um, uh, not being able to uh, enroll in their tribe because they can't, uh, their files, you know, their, their, their files are sealed. Mm-hmm. Or um, a friend of mine who um, really, uh, you know, she was, she was in her 60s and it was painful for her because she was a product of rape. And um, because of that was not able, was not um, uh, enough blood quantum. That's also another, that's a whole other thing um, to be able to get citizenship. And so, I mean, uh, in uh, uh, enrollment in her tribe. So I think you have to be mindful about why it is you're asking that question and whether you're prepared for, um, you know, very honest answer and, and wh- whether you might be triggering some very painful memories for somebody because of this really um, fairly unimportant question, you know. In episode 13, titled Indigenizing Education, we chatted with Miriam, who is uh, Choctaw, Cherokee, Sac Fox, uh, African-American and Ashkenazi. Um, I'm a mother of two beautiful brown children, and um, I am a early learning coach with the city of Seattle. In that episode, we discussed... One of the things that I really love about um, indigenous frameworks, frameworks of, of, of um, teaching and just kind of being that I have seen in many different indigenous cultures, uh, not just those that are here, you know, in the Americas, but, um, also in Aotearoa uh, or New Zealand, you know, the um, uh, ways of looking at our plant relatives and our animal relatives and, um, uh, and our water relatives and, you know, and thinking of them, I remember having an elder say um, that the reason that you, um, should really regard um, them as your relatives is that it helps to teach you a better way to treat them because um, the way in which we regard some of these things are as resources. So it allows us to exploit them and um, deprive them. And so if these were our grandmothers and grandfathers, you know, you wouldn't mistreat or abuse or poison them. And how children hold a sacred place in the cultures of indigenous people, which is reflected in the way they view children. There are a lot of um, cultural ways of thinking, indigenous ways of thinking that um, hold children at a much higher level and um, is more competent, as more um, precious and sacred than um than a lot of our Western Westernized curriculums. Uh, that children are not just a vessel that we pour knowledge into and that um, we don't want them to be just compliant. We don't want them to, you know, to conform. We we want them to be who they are. We want them know, to know who they are. Um, and so, uh, and we want them to know how to kind of intrinsically walk through the world with this um, uh, a sense of how to be a, a better person. Today, we continue that conversation 
with part two. All right, y'all. So everyone knows that childcare is essential. We're some of the most influential people out there. Yet, we are often overworked and underpaid. So how can you work full time, have hobbies, show your friends and family love, self-care, and also fine tune your skills and grow more in depth? That's where we come in. These NAPCasts are designed to help you learn on the go, hear another perspective, spark debate, (laughs) heck, even agree with us, but honestly remind you that you're not alone. We live in a complex world, so allow us to challenge your perspective. So are your headphones in? Did you turn the volume up? All right now, good. Let's get it. So when we're talking about culture, we're talking things that are intangible. But when we're trying to implement curriculum or um, teach of the indigenous ways, right, in, in the classroom, we often want something that we can touch, we can see, we can do. And I think that also comes into when we do land acknowledgments. And for me, the problem I see with land acknowledgments is that people believe it's the end-all, be-all. Um, they believe that's the work. Much like they believe, um, I would say, supporting Black businesses once in a while is reparations, especially when we're talking about in the wake of Breonna Taylor, Natasha McKenna, Gabriela Nevarez, Kendra James, Melissa Williams, you know, I'm just rattling all of them off because, you know, hashtag say her name. Um, but that's just one piece of the puzzle. And most of the people listening out here are educators, and I often say educators, um, or I often hear educators say, well, all I can do is control what's happening in my classroom. So what can educators do or suggest to their legislators, um, knowing that you work both in the city and, and as you worked um, in, in a program? Um, so what can educators do to suggest to the legislators, to their elected officials, to their leadership team, um, to really center BIPOC voices, uh, most specifically Indigenous people, not just in the curriculum, but in everything they do. I think it's important to remember that you have power as a voter, that you voted for these people, and they're going to need to be voted back in, and that it is really important to to say, be very explicit, be very clear about, um, uh, you know, what, what the needs are. Maybe, um, so... As an educator, um, you know, I found that the most powerful voices are those parents. Uh, You get parents to speak. You get children to write things like, hey, I want my school to be safe. Hey, I want want a safe place to play. Um, I, you know, I I want my parents to have a roof over their head. I don't want to be hungry. You know, I mean, things like that, that um, are real issues that a lot of our folks in the BIPOC communities are facing. I mean, so, you know, for example, um, you know, Native Americans uh, here in Seattle, you know, uh, just for an example, uh, represent the largest number of uh, homeless folks. Mm. And, you know, and it says something when you are homeless on your own land, that is shameful. With as much money as the city has, um, people shouldn't be homeless. 
children. It's always, I remember, you know, coaching and then also as a preschool director, you know, it was heartbreaking to hear that, you know, kids were sleeping in cars, sleeping in shelters, sleeping on couches, moving around a ton, you know, and, um, uh, or they didn't feel safe or they were, um, they had a lot of trauma that hadn't been, um, uh, hadn't been supported because of, um, you know, access to, to healthcare because of gun violence, you know, in their family, for example. Um, and so these are, these are things where if we say that we really care about, um, children's well-beings, if we care about families, um, then we need to create more opportunities for them to have safe places to be, um, to have uh, uh, ways to access those important resources. And it's, you know, and for those that push back with the idea of not wanting to give handouts, it's like, you know what, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that we take for granted that we get as a quote handout, you know. There's a lot of things that we get as part of being in this country and having our privileges. And it's, you know, it's important for folks to um, reflect on um, what it might be if you happen to have, a, you know, a series of unfortunate events um, or, you know, a, a history of unfortunate events that keep you in a system of, of being traumatized and poor and um uh and discriminated against i mean um so you know my i would say educators uh encourage parents especially encouraging the parents with privilege and with power to figure out what their you know networks are to get get letters sent maybe maybe it's you collect you know um uh, have have uh, you know developmentally appropriate conversations with children about some of these um, these uh, current events that are happening. You know whatever the event is that you're you're wanting to center the message on, making that message specific, maybe focusing on one thing at a time, so that um, that legislator is is not getting a, a whole mass of of information in different areas. Like you make your you make your ask very specific. Like we need. We need more funding to make sure that we can get supplies for um, um, for families that uh, need winter coats. Um, that we need to, you know, we have maybe we have a specific family that is having some hardships with um, uh, with housing, and we're wanting to help raise funds. You know, what? How can you? What can you do to help? You know, they they live in your district, or maybe they're homeless in your district. Mm. I remember a couple, probably a year ago, when you were at Daybreak, you hosted the intersection of early learning and homelessness. It was a summit or a conference or a symposium, and, and it was fantastic. Do you have, um, putting you on the spot here, but do you have any, or remember any takeaways uh, or aha moments that you had as you were sitting, as you were learning, as you were participating um, while you were there? Yeah, so that that was a that was a wonderful event, and so I yeah I presented on a panel on that. Um, it was hosted by a combination of the Family Support and the Homelessness Prevention Department, and you know, and um, you know what was what was great about that. Uh, there were there were so many events going on at on that day, so it was I I was part of like you know these little snippets, and um, I helped out in some of the planning. But you know, what was what was wonderful. It was that 
was that it was an opportunity for groups that did not, um, that were not used to intersecting um, on these topics um, to, uh, to, to, to get a chance um, to see the, the commonalities we had. Um, actually, for example, um, oh boy, I'm going to forget her name. Uh, Bet Irvis? Bet from uh, Wellsprings. Yes, thank you. <laughs> like, oh no, what's her name? This is like the worst time to forget her name. So I remember uh, sitting on the panel with Bavette from Wellspring, and she was just, you know, she was amazing at talking about the stories. And, and we realized as we were talking, as we we're sharing stories, uh, that we had a lot of the same issues around transportation for our families. That both of our both of us had programs. Um, early learning programs that were struggling with trying to find um, funds for school buses in order to help children get to school. And, um, and both of us, both of us talked about how this was really critical for families that did not have a reliable vehicle or families that had, um, uh, you know, maybe irregular work hours and had to have somebody else help get their kids to the bus, um, or even families that you know, families that were homeless or families that just um, that just needed transportation for some other reason, and that that it was a very expensive cost, and that yet we see this as um, just fundamentally important. You know, access here we have a mode to help people get that access, but there's no funding for it. And that, you know, a lot of entities would say, oh, we don't, we don't fund that. We don't, we don't have money for that. And it's like, well, why? Why can't we, why can't we create that? That seems like a, that's, that's again, that's a very specific ask. Like we need money for these school buses. And yet, um, I think she was saying that, yeah, they had to, they either had to significantly reduce or um, eliminate their fleet as a result result of it. Um, Daybreak Star, sadly. Um, had to make that decision too. It's, um, you know, it's this, this very expensive cost and we don't, it's like, we don't realize what we got until it's gone. Um, they were talking about, um, there, there were a lot of places that, um, realized in some of the conversations that, uh, they were putting a face to the name for the partners that they had in um you know that was that were perhaps just via email these were the folks that they had been corresponding with but finally being able to make that face-to-face uh contact in this more of a social setting um there was the um the the great amount of resource sharing i i I know for myself i benefit benefited from the fact that um i had questions that i just wasn't getting an answer to and i just kind of put the question out there and people in the audience were like oh that's actually our agency oh actually we have a link for that oh you know i can give you a you know i can give you my email and um we might be able, we, we might be able to help with that and so an audience and i was writing out all the names myself <laughs> yeah oh i know it was like, you know, resource page come alive uh, right there in real time. And, and what was, yeah, what was great is that, you know, you have homelessness and you have early learning and people, you know, in other contexts may not have seen where those, 
those two intersected, but then, you know, it's all of these connections started being made. So that's, um, yeah, that's what was really wonderful. And it was in, um, you know, being hosted in a place that is meant to be a gathering place. So it's like, you know, at daybreak, you're in this beautiful historic building that gathers people together. And so you've got these great minds from participants to speakers to organizers, everybody just connecting and, and um, engaging and, um, yeah, just trying to see what we can do to help some of our families. So uh, I'm really hoping that there's an opportunity to do, you know, 2.0 of that, of that conference. And it goes back to something that my mom used to always say, probably not the best of context right now, but closed mouth don't get fed. And basically it's, you know, for those who are not familiar with it, it's basically, if you don't speak up, you're not going to, you're not going to get anything. And I think that's why it's so important that we attend different things that might not, you might not necessarily see, oh, how does that have to do with my daily work or what I do in the classroom? But you're able to go to different and hear different people and hear different perspectives and go, oh, wait, and have that aha moment, that enlightenment, like, oh, it's so much bigger than the kids I'm serving. It's so much bigger than the the program I'm in. It's about transportation. It's about food. It's about providing um, services that aims to nourish the mind, body, and souls of children. So I appreciate you definitely bringing that up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think also that, you know, at these events, um, they oftentimes will happen. Um, you know, they, of course, like everything, there's always hiccups. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't often know about what all the behind the scenes stuff is. And it's better to do it than to try to strive for perfection on these things. And I think, you know, also thinking about the saying of, um, you know, if you're doing something in a good way, if you are, um, if you're going into it with good intention, um, you are trying our best to take that that care in in every aspect of it and knowing that you're going to have that flexibility things are going to come up but it's fine you can let those things roll off um i could say that was definitely the case when i uh had done a workshop uh and i had a bazillion technology issues i was like you know yeah, this is happening and it's okay because the intention for the day is greater than these minor things. And it's, it's, it's better not to invest your energy in um, trying to make something perfect. It's better to invest that energy in you know, how are, how are people doing? Mm-hmm. You know, are they connecting? Are people getting the message across? Are people, um, are, are they fe- feeling like they are, uh, being checked in with. Exactly. That's the heart of our cultures. Speaking yeah. of which, and you said it really quickly earlier, so I'm going to try to repeat it and I might get it wrong. So help me out here. You are Choctaw, Cherokee, South Fox, right? Did I say that right? Uh, okay. Uh, African American uh, and Ashkenazi. Uh, okay. Woo. All right. <laughs> I knew all those language classes would finally come in handy. <laughs> but, you know, you alone, I feel like, have more identities than a lot of the families or, or some, a lot of the families some of these centers are serving. And we have a lot of people who are listening who are bi or multicultural. 
in, they really do struggle with the question, am I black enough? Or how do I claim my narrative, my native heritage? Or am I worthy enough to be Latinx? So how have you connected to all of your different identities and all your different cultures? So when I think about being a multiracial person, um, I identify as Afro-Indigenous. And, you know, when I think about the fact that my family comes from, um, you know, three different groups of people who have uh, survived um, just unspeakable, uh, unimaginable challenges of um, extermination, you know, essentially, uh, you know, genocidal acts for indigenous people, for Africans that were brought here and enslaved, and also for uh, Jewish people. Now those, um, I see myself as incredibly grateful to those elders uh, and those of my ancestors who uh, were resilient and um, were survivors and and also, you know, mournful for those who did not survive. Um, But ultimately, who made it possible for me to be here and to have privileges and access that um, was unafforded to them. Uh, And I also, um, you know, want to acknowledge the fact that I've always grown up in cities that, uh, in places that were not places that my, families were from. I grew up uh, actually overseas in Taiwan. I lived there from when I was three months old until I was seven and a half because my um, my dad had an opportunity to do a, uh, he wanted to study traditional medicine and, and was a, and practiced under a friend of his who was Taiwanese. So, um, you know, that experience also being a multiracial person living in a place that is not that's also not part of your culture. I, um, I um, am not Taiwanese, um, but the experience in living there was really um, eye-opening. You know, when I look back, because um, I lived there since I was a child. I was uh, bilingual. I spoke the language. Um, I, I no longer speak the language, but um, I went to an all Taiwanese school, uh, preschool and in kindergarten, and. Uh, I was the only non-Taiwanese person uh, in the class. And, you know, you could clearly see in um, uh, class photos that um, I definitely stood out as the as the only, um, you know, brown child in the class, much, you know, much darker in complexion than some of my other, other peers uh, in the class. And yet I um, did not experience the level of othering that I did when I moved back to the United States. Um, And when I was there, I really did not get any messages that I remember as a child um, that made me think that I was not Taiwanese. Um, And, you know, this is the beauty of children. um, And that I just, yeah, I, I thought, that this was who I was. And um, nobody told me that I um, was not from there until I came back to the United States. And I moved to Aurora, I'm sorry, I moved to, yeah, Aurora, Illinois, where my grandmother lived. We lived with my grandmother for a few years um, after we moved back. And um, and it was, uh, I went to a school that was 
predominantly white and uh you know and the I I I feel like the way they regarded me was like I was like an alien like they couldn't understand why I was this brown child who a lot of my um um teachers initially thought I was um I was Puerto Rican um and uh they also just you know I and I could see how um I might you know, um, they might think that, you know, just phenotypically. Um, and the fact that I spoke, um, Taiwanese, they just thought that that they couldn't understand the idea of somebody living in another place and having the language, which you, know, you think as an adult, that's just absurd. Um, and I remember very clearly in second grade being told I needed to pick, um, whether I was you know, um, I, I needed to, uh, initially they only gave me the option of um, black or white. Uh, native was not even part of the mix of what they, what the teacher was offering me. And, and I remember the question she asked was, well, which parent do you like better? And I just felt so uncomfortable with the question because you just don't ask children that. That's just, you know, it's so inappropriate. And, and also it, you can be multiracial, you know, in this country. Um, there were more options on that form. They just weren't being given to me. And so those are the messages that came to me early on was um, you don't fit into the boxes that we have and we're not quite sure where you fit. And so we need to just pick this for you. And I'd always have people telling me, oh, well, you could pass as this. You should just, you know, you, you could totally just pass as this. You should just be that. And I'm like, I don't feel like that's appropriate either. Um, so anyway, you know, that just led me to seek more information from family and um, really asking questions about, you know, who, who are our family members? And, um, and I remember asking my grandmother and she really didn't, um, uh, feel comfortable um, having some of those conversations just because, um, you know, some uh, pain and trauma and dynamics that I, as a child, um, and as a, you know, adolescent, early adolescent, just wasn't quite sure how to navigate um, and didn't realize by asking and being so persistent that, you know, it was, uh, triggering probably some very painful memories for her. And, um, and uh, but my great grandfather actually offering um, stories about uh, some of our family members, um, both of our um, you know our our native and our um, African American um, family members, and he would always uh, he would always encourage me to go talk to my grandmother. Like he'd give me a kind of a cliffhanger ending, and he'd give me like little tidbits of information. And I have this beautiful portrait of me sitting on his lap um, when I was about eight or nine years old. And, and that was a lot of my memories with him is that um, I would sit with him and he would share stories and he'd always give me just enough to keep me questioning. And he'd ask me to, you know, talk to this person, talk to that person. My grandmother would often tell me, you know, we don't talk about that person. We don't talk about that. You know, um, you shouldn't be asking those questions. And it wasn't until I got older that I was able to, you know, better understand um, you know, some of the, some of the pain that that brought for her. Um, so as I got older, you know, I, um, you know, the, was just seeing that a lot of the messages that we get as, as mixed race folks, um, and especially mixed race 
Indigenous and African-American folks, um, some of those elements of anti-Blackness that come into those conversations and feeling permission to be who you are, feeling permission to ask to have a voice or a seat at a table or just, you know, just to be, just to be. And, um, and how we pick ourselves apart and how we get into these, um, the language of colonization, essentially, of how we divide ourselves up and blood quantums and, and percentages. And I, I remember having an elder tell me, well, you know, you really can't, you really can't be, you know, um, you, you can't measure blood. I think that's what they were saying. You can't measure blood. And they said, you, you know, you can't say that your leg is black and your arm is white and you're, you know, this is, you know, a uh, native and da, 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 da. And, and I thought, you know, that's a good point. They said, well, you're just one whole person and you need to remember to use that language. And they said, you know, words are powerful. You're just one, you're one whole person. Don't, don't pick yourself apart. And um, so I had to start kind of changing that, that language um, around how I, I talked about myself and, um, and also uh, reaching out and feeling, feeling um, uh, a little bit stronger about being able to ask questions, um, you know, in community when I had questions about like, how do I do this? Where do I go for this? Who do I ask about this? Um, How do I, how do I learn more about these traditions? You know, can, can you offer um, some guidance about who might be, you know, helpful to, as I'm in my learning path and, you know, wanting to learn language, wanting to learn um, about ceremony. Um, And I am just forever grateful to all of those folks in community who, you know, gave me that opportunity and that space to just, ask questions and, and, and be curious and, and, um, find out about protocols and, you know, so, um, and I ultimately really felt the push, um, you know, in my mid twenties to really start doing more work to learn about how to, um, feel comfortable identifying, you know, as Afro-Indigenous and, and just, um, you know, and in, in having folks in um, uh, some Choctaw elders who, um, you know, reached back and said, hey, you know, come to this, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll share information with you. Well, much like yours, you know, my parents and my grandparents, they, they often struggle with me, at least growing up, to find the words to explain or to, to share and tell stories of themselves when they were little of what life was back on the island they grew up on, you know, of their, of just their journey to the United States and all because of this past trauma they experienced, which makes it so incredibly difficult for me to learn through, through storytelling about my history, my culture, my people. And that longing I'm feeling is is part of the spark I felt, a spark which has led to to this transformation I'm feeling and I'm going through every single day to to my outward expression, ownership, and affirmation of my identity, of my active participation in pro-black and and pro-bipoc movement 
of, of healing and solidarity, really of this deep desire and longing to connect with the culture, I really only saw glimpse, glimpses of growing up. So for you, Miriam, what was the, the impetus? What was the catalyst for you to really lean into this work of discovering all parts of your identity and to own it? So one thing that one thing that I centered myself around probably at age 25, 26 was the fact that I really wanted to become a parent within the next few years. And so I decided to really dedicate myself to trying to learn as much as I could because I I really wanted my child to not have to have this wondering for so long. I really wanted them to have a good foundation starting off. And I thought, okay, well, um, and this is with good advice from another parent. They said, well, if you want that, you're going to need to do that work. If you want that for your child, you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to, and they would say, they told me, they're like, you're going to have to get over yourself and your discomforts and being able to ask questions. And you need to, you know, you need to learn more so that you actually have something you can teach them. And, and that was, you know, beautiful advice because it was, you know, it's, it's been a lot of work. I'm still learning every day. Um, I'm, uh, I had a, I had an eight-year-old who, uh, eight-year-old girl who uh, gave me a age to learn how to introduce myself. Um, in Jakarta, she, um, she introduced herself, um, you know, at an event and um, she asked why I didn't know how to. And I said, oh, you know, I just, you know, I just don't know. And she said, it's, it's not that hard. You should just practice. And I thought, yeah, you're right. I'm an adult. I can, there are resources plenty. I can just, I just need to dedicate the time. She said, okay, well, you should take a, a healthy risk, which is what we were talking about. You should take a healthy risk and, you know, try to see if you can do this by next year. And it, she was just amazing. Um, and I thought, yeah, there was no reason that I shouldn't be able to do this. I need to just, I just need to do it. I just need to get over myself and I need to dedicate the time. So um, I um, asked around, I asked for help. I asked people, tried to, you know, be vulnerable. Um, and, uh, and thankfully there were, you know, many folks in the, in the native community that were very gracious and willing to teach and um, willing to let me stumble through things and ask lots of, uh, ask lots of questions and um, send me things and text messages and audio clips, and Facebook messenger. And, um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm just eternally grateful for all of those folks who have allowed me to be on this, this learning path. Um, and so, and, and actually, so one of the other things was that, um, my, my good friend, who's uh, also another, um, African-American and Choctaw woman, her name's uh, Leanne Rye Brock. And, um, uh, we have been having these really amazing conversations with other folks too, that are identified as black and native, um, or Afro-Indigenous or, you know, other, other identities as well. and about um what it's like when you are you are your you are a mix of different cultures um that include african-american and indigenous you know whatever the tribes may be 
And we talked about a lot of um, these concepts. So she's doing her dissertation work around blood tropes and how um, this was a tool of colonization and tool of the government to, you know, divide um, divide people. Uh, and you know, specifically thinking about the one drop rule for African Americans. And if you are one, that this insane concept of you have one drop of black blood, then you're black. And like, you think about that, you're just like, that makes no sense. Like you, you can't count people's drops of blood. Um, and, uh, and then this was a way of, um, you know, she said that through her research, you know, learning that this was a way in which the government denied African Americans who were also, um, uh, mixed with uh, uh, Native Americans, um, their ability to enroll in tribes and part of the Dawes Commission, um, this inability to have that connection to culture, this continued um, sense of erasure, um, and for Native communities, you know, this is those those folks that are that are should be part of your community that are being taken out of your community mm-hmm. and pushing those narratives around anti-blackness and um and then other narratives around um uh natives being you know the um less you know um less human mm-hmm. less worthy less you know in social status you know and so it's even written in our constitution like savages or something right yeah it is <laughs> yeah merciless indian savages was just in there and you're just like that is really shameful you should be grateful because these folks you know the land that you stole of theirs you're you're profiting greatly off of that the least you could do is give them a little bit of respect <laughs> you know <laughs> but you know yeah i mean so anyway you know and it, so I'll, I'll just say that having having all of these different identities um I think has given me the opportunity to um, really learn more about my different families. And, and I think more importantly, in thinking about my great grandfather, um, not discounting, not forgetting, um, not erasing those parts um, of my identity and remembering that, you know, they, they went through, um, unspeakable um, atrocities and, and discrimination and made it possible for me to be here. And so I, you know, I have chosen to honor their memory and honor their struggles and honor um, everything they've done to give me the privileges that I have today um, by saying their name, making sure that they're called out whenever I introduce myself. Thank you. So I guess this this last thing is is less of a question and and more of me looking for support around my understanding more about the safety, security, and well-being of indigenous women X and two spirits people across North America, really across the world. So why do natives wear red on May 5th? And why is everything from like wage equity and stability, economic stability, um, safety and well-being again is so invi- is so vital to the empowerment of your people? 
So, um, yeah, the wearing of red on May 5th is part of um, the missing and murdered Indigenous women's uh, movement. It's so it's to raise awareness about it and um, and, and I should say uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls um, and that um, it also includes those that are uh, two-spirit as well. So this is based on a congressional resolution that created that as a national day of awareness um, for MMIW. Um, and it was drafted in memory of a, a woman named Hannah Harris, who's Northern Cheyenne, who was murdered July 31st, 2013. And um, it was a way of recognizing the fact that this, the incidents of, of indigenous women and girls um, and two-spirit folks in our country, uh, in the United States is happening uh, at such an alarming rate. I think they said that like the rate is um, it's like five times the national average. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and uh, four out of five, that's what it was, four out of five Native American um, women and girls affected by violence. And so it's 10 times the national average, sorry. Yeah, and, um, and yet it is not tracked nearly anywhere close um, to that of homicides of um, and kidnappings of non-Indigenous women and girls. Um, a lot of the information is, um, is, is not held to the same level of importance. Um, things are, are, some of these cases are, are classified as, you know, other acts. And so a lot of the perpetrators are not prosecuted. And you have perpetrators who know that this, that the likelihood of them actually being pursued for prosecution um, is so little that it, it almost seems to encourage, if you're looking to traffic somebody, you know, if you are looking to harm somebody, it, it almost seems to direct people towards a certain group because of the gross misjustice, you know, that's uh, gross injustices that are happening, um, um, not taking these crimes seriously, um, not even just creating um, a adequate registry um, to to document these cases and, and make sure that families know um, where their family members are, you know, and so uh, there's a couple of resources I wanted to, to mention because I, I have, you know, very superficial knowledge about about it and um there's a couple of women here in um uh well there's a there's a couple of women i'm going to name but there's there's many people working on this but um abigail echohawk uh, was the director of the urban indian health institute and then also um organizers um were very active in the mmiw movement as well uh, roxanne white and jerry muma um two native women who um uh, you know, I feel like anytime I see something around um, the MMIW um, initiatives here in Washington, uh, they are they're often leading the charge. Um, and so there's uh, you know those are those are a couple places. Urban Indian Health Institute is uh, right there in the International District. Um, 
there's a website called the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. Um, that's another place to look for more information, um, you know, about it. Uh, so there's, um, and there's also like coalition to stop violence against Native women. So there's many different organizations that are out there trying to spread the word, make sure that legislations are passed and um, and continued support is happening, continued um, uh, uh, efforts are, are happening to, to make sure that um, uh, cases get prosecuted or cases get, um, well, filed and followed through on. Um, on your second question, um, thinking about wage uh, equity and stability um, uh, and safety and well-being, you know, I, I think that that goes back to the question of um, I think it goes back to the question of acknowledging um, that Native peoples um, have been uh, almost invisible in many of these conversations. Uh, I, I feel that, you know, my, my personal opinion is that, you know, a lot of the times when you see statistics looking at how um, inequalities across um, wages and um, health statistics, that because of the proportion of Native Americans that might be surveyed or data collected on them um, tends to be smaller, they're usually the asterisk at the bottom of the chart. And so it's almost as if, you know, in, in many cases, whether intentional or not, that um, indigenous folks are, are invisible in so many of these conversations. They're absent at the table because they may not have been invited to the table. Um, they may not have been considered. Sometimes you have folks that are in the policy making seats uh, that may be under the misimpression that um, if they are Native, then they have um, support from, let's say, you know, I, I've heard people say, oh, you know, they should be able to get support from their tribe. Well, there's a lot of factors there. You know, is the person enrolled in the tribe? Is the tribe federally recognized? Are they um, able to have? Um, is there is is there a, a balance in in resources that are available across tribes? We know that there aren't. Um, not everybody has access to the same things. But the larger question should be, you know, these are all folks that are, let's just say, in Seattle. These are all folks that are living here in Seattle they should all be included in the conversation. We shouldn't be trying to figure out how to um, uh, eliminate groups from the data because it doesn't, it, it's not as, it's not as clean. It's, it's harder to explain. Um, you know, I think that overall the empowerment question comes to head when you think about just what is equitable. If you have a group of people that has been historically marginalized and that, have had very deliberate attempts to literally erase them sometimes off the earth, you know, that um, there needs to be even more done. There needs to be more resources put in. There needs to be more access. There needs to be um, more efforts to reach out and 
specifically invite them to the table to have those conversations and make sure that their voices are heard and make sure that we're asking what they are wanting. Um, so, you know, when, you know, the question goes out for indigenous folks, you know, we want to ask, like, hey, have you invited us to the table? Have you, um, do you really want us at the table? If we're at the table, are you really going to listen to what we're asking for? And, you know, and, and maybe in the specific way in which we're needing this to be done and the specific timing that we need this to be done. And maybe it's not going to be from the person that you would see as uh, uh, the stakeholder in the community. That stakeholder might be a family member. It might be an elder. It might be a youth who has shown, you know, um, great leadership and ability to, you know, uh, have a voice and speak out. Yeah. So we talked a lot today about just, you know, erasure, erasure, um, you know, heavy topics, things like that. So my last question of provocation to you is what sustains you? What, how do you heal? How do you, um, not just survive, but what helps you thrive each and every single day? I would say my kids, you know, they're awesome. <laughs> uh, I have two now. And um, I think that when, whenever I get to that point of exhaustion or whenever I get to that point of um, feeling defeated about something that might've happened during the day or, events that are happening out there in the world, you know, it's, it is, it's really lovely to have, well, I think just children in general have that ability to just have that deep love and, um, and that I just feel like that, that intuitive connection to you, they know when you're feeling However you're feeling, you know, I love when my son comes up to me and he sees that I look tired and he says, I think you need to rest your body, mom. (laughs) 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 Or he'll bring a pillow to me or, you know, or sometimes I just notice that he'll just, he'll just readjust and give me a break, which is great. And sometimes just, you know, bring me a cup of water or offer to help with his sister, Um, you know, with the... so yeah, Nishoba is just—he's—I don't know. Sometimes I also think like I'm—I'm I'm thinking about something and he'll say it, and I'm like, "Wow, this is amazing. We're so connected. You're such an amazing little human being." Um, and then Nitalusa is um, my daughter, and she's two months old now, and she's just such a smiley, happy little baby. And it's just, it's so nice, you know, especially when you just hear the crazy stuff going out in this country, just insanity that's being said. And I can just turn it off and I look at her and I can make a funny face or smile. And she smiles back and I'm like, oh, it's, if only the world could be this simple. I love that just looking at light makes you happy. You know, walking around the house makes you happy. Just everything makes you happy. And I I wish that um yeah, you know, I I I wish that for everyone. 
um, to just have those people or those things that just bring you that deep sense of joy or, um, or people who can help check in with you and remind you or help you find ways of creating joy. Um, yeah, finding those places that create joy. So yeah, because of quarantine, finding joy has been being at home or being in the woods. And so it's just, it's been beautiful to just have my kids with me all the time. Thank you for, you know, sharing your thoughts, your love with us, um, having us have a inside your 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 life and, and what you're doing to sustain yourself and sustain your cultures. Um, thanks for the dog in the background. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, somebody's here, yeah. <laughs> um, and for everything that you're putting out in this world. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Yeah. I'm really excited for this opportunity. Yeah, Wiki. Thank you. We'll be right back. Hilltop Children's Center is a high-quality preschool, after-school program, and professional development institute of early learning and inquiry, serving the Seattle community since 1971. Together, we are working with the next generation of inventors, leaders, thinkers, artists, and social activists. For more information on our professional development and community outreach, including workshops, presentations, blogs, coaching and consulting, and of course, this NAPCAST, please visit www.hilltopcc.org. So Nick, I asked, I asked, <laughs> I asked Miriam, is it for her? Is it important to say it's indigenous, it's aboriginal, it's native? So what's what's culturally relevant for you, the terminology? Yeah, you know, that was one of the one thing that really st struck me as I was listening to it. Um, and one of the first notes I wrote down, and I, as, as we, as people will look at, at what I identify as or what I've told you and told other people as native Mexican American, and I use the word native American more than indigenous um, even though, you know, it's interesting people from Mexico or, or Latin America are native mm -hmm. to America. Right. And, uh, or at least a, a good chunk of their bloodline is, and I guess I, I heavily refer to myself as that. Cause I'm other things. I think I told you like I'm, there's some Japanese and yep. some Filipino and obviously Spanish. United um, Nations. Yeah. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so, but I, I refer to Native Mexican American because those are the, the, the two big identifiers that have been most culturally relevant in my life. Um, and, I, and by either practices and stories I've been told and, and just living in, you know, Southern California, where it was like, oh, yeah, I'm like all these other, uh, all, all the other Mexican Americans around us. Or, I mean, not like them, but there's a lot of similarities in cultural practices. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was interesting to hear, to hear that question that you posed on uh, Miriam. And, you know, another thing in that capacity that really struck me was um, that there, and I forget where it was in the podcast, uh, but there's not one way to, to do this. Uh, 
to be a human, essentially, right? That we all come about it in with what's relevant to us in our cultures um, and, and even where we, where we are as a people in the land that we're on. And, you know, I think, I wonder, and I pose to all humans out there who can listen to this and, and maybe you can pose this to your friends, like perhaps if, though we like all carry a capacity to have a perspective of sacredness uh, when it comes to yeah. children, uh-huh. that, that this isn't just a, I mean, maybe right now it is a very indigenous thing to, to, to look at children this way. But what if we all find that capacity within ourselves to look at children this way with a sacredness sort of, um, uh, what is that? A perspective or a paradigm. And then maybe we would start seeing each other as as humans, as adult yeah. humans, as, as sacred, and, and starting that now more right. than ever. And you know, I that, that's a good point. I'm going to start even looking at some of the language we have in our website, making sure that we're not just saying, "Oh, behold a high image of the child," but start intentionally folding in these words "sacred" into our conversations. Because if we're able to communicate that to families, right, it's like the domino effect mm-hmm. that suddenly they'll go, wow, actually, yeah, you know, I I like the way that you phrase it as a sacred part of our life cycle. And now I'm going to go into my Microsoft office, my, you know, bus driver office Mm -hmm. and start using that terminology so that it hits other people in the same or or different way. Yeah. And I think that domino effect begins there, right? When you start using words and people are like, what do you mean that like children are sacred or that like you're treating me with sacredness? Like, what does that mean? Then you can implore someone to go look it up, mm-hmm. right? Or give them the information to look it up and like, oh, and then they'll start seeing those parallels of like, oh yeah, this is how I do see someone. And then they can start interweaving those, um, the, the meaning making that they're getting from this idea of sacredness. And then at the, to, this kind of touches on the last, the very last point that you made in the podcast. This is a way we can start indigenizing our minds, mm. right? And then we can start having these exchanges yeah. with each other. And it's like, oh, what do you mean by that, Mike? Well, this is what I mean, blah, 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 blah. And like, oh, yeah. And that lines up with what I, I call it this. And it's like, oh, okay. And then, you know, I think it just kind of opens that door to a little bit more, it, or maybe not open the door, but like I meant, said earlier, deepen the capacity. Because mm. I think, there are capacities that we all carry as human beings. And I think our interactions and our experiences that we have can either stunt those capacities or deepen them. You know, and I think that we are, we're in the business of trying to deepen people's capacities. Well said. Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The other thing that really, uh, that really stood out to me, especially with the conversation I had with a, a young person who's just starting their first year of college today, I had that conversation. They were telling me that they were taking a class um, about the history of, uh, of uh, outdoor and, and wilderness and woods and in relation to human beings and the relationship and the interactions that has. And one of the things she brought up was that the U.S. industries of like, let's say, forestry and lumbering and agriculture and Marion touched on it, mining, uh-huh. the copper mines, uh-huh. 
that a lot of these industries were intentional, like really became intentional at just pursuing that industry, whether it's deforestation or mining, to push indigenous people out. Mm-hmm. So it was a way to take away their resources, exploiting them. Yeah. As Miriam said, when we don't have a strong relationship with it, like like those native people have a strong relationship with their waterbeds, with their trees, their forests, and the, and everything. And it's um, you know that just touches upon everyone. Everyone always tells me like, "Oh, white supremacy is such a construct or abstract construct for me to wrap my mind around." And I think that beautifully illustrates one way that, because it can live many different ways, but mm-hmm. one way in which, you know, it can, it can show up. It's right. the taking away of resources that we know is so vital to, to the livelihoods of, uh, of a specific person. Right. And, and I think what you're saying to what other people say about it being abstract is, I think a lot of the times white supremacy and white supremacy values get looked at as, as an ideology and it's hard to actually see the methodology Mm. behind it. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of those really tangible examples of the methodology of how, you know, white supremacy has pushed uh, people off of their lands or just flat out wiped them out. Mm -hmm. And, and I love what Miriam, you know, really putting it in and, and I felt it here at Daybreak Star with the with the language that the teachers use and the kids use it and all the other everybody on this uh in this center of these are our plant relatives, these this is our animal relatives. Like um there was a uh, uh, you know teacher Rory. Yeah right yeah yeah <laughs> this this guy is like an animal whisperer. But <laughs> so that the him and the kids they found this like little baby bunny one morning. And it seemed like it was separated from its family. And it was just like snuggled in a little pile of leaves, like freezing. Yeah. And it was barely alive. I need to get a weighted blanket. I just got one. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rory served as a weighted blanket for it. Picked up this little bunny with gloves on and like, you know, and it started perking up with the warmth of his hands. Mm-hmm. And then he held it close. And, you know, and the kids were just seeing this act of like, oh, yeah, let's take care of this bunny. Mm-hmm. And they they pulled some uh, little vegetables from the garden that we have here and they fed it and then put it in the sun. And then eventually it started hopping around and, and seeing him chase this little bunny. And I was like, wow, you actually caught a bunny. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's kind of like Rocky chasing the, ch- the chicken. You know? <laughs> and so he gets it. And then, and I hear him say, and then I heard um, one of the security people saying like, Oh, we got, yeah, all right, let's go return brother bunny. Let's go return it back. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the security guy looked at it and he's kind of this big, tough dude. And he, then he just got really soft. I was like, Oh, are you okay? Little brother. <laughs> and like, you know, gave, gave the bunny a little pet. And just, and then I think children hearing that language, yeah, like brother bunny, like it's mm-hmm. not just this bunny. It's, exactly. it's our brother. Let's take care of it. Or we were actively giving it some empathy. And then, yeah. And then, it was able to, you know, run off, and luckily we haven't found its body or anything. So, <laughs> not to get morbid, but that went south. <laughs> we, we we think it 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 we believe that it went um, and found its family, and it and it uh, is thriving. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's. Uh, 
I forget why I'm I don't on that tangent. But, <laughs> but I think it's a form of resistance. Hmm. Oh yeah, and that's a the other. Did you see that word I written down? Yeah. You know when there's, you know when you were talking again at the end of the podcast, like what is radical? Mm-hmm. And I know you and I have talked about like education being radical and whatnot. You know, and I I think that paradigms and thought processes are only radical when there's resistance from an established status quo. Mm-hmm. In entrenched establishments that serve one group's interests are going to deem things that, you know, go against that grain as radical, right? At one point, allowing our black brothers and sisters to go to school was radical. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And that wasn't that long ago. Exactly. You sold the words right out of my mouth. (laughs) So, but because of the persistence of what we know is righteous and what we know is valuable for us, not just in our own, um, in our own little cultural clusters or our, our whatever the color of our skin is, we just know this is better for the human race, right? Like when we can start closing the gaps on these, uh, on particular things that are displacing and marginalizing people, people that are being significantly marginalized, then it's better for all of us really. And I think that's where one of those sort of cliche, but it's true of like, we're not free until we're all free, you know? And like, we just got to take care of one another. And I think you, you kind of meant, or maybe it was Miriam had mentioned it, the, you know, um, and I always go back to New Zealand because, you know, while it may not be perfect, they definitely have something going on right there. Yes, sir. And one of their big, um, as a nation, their, uh, I guess, motto or, or something is like, we're all, we're all on, the, we're all fronds on the same fern, yeah. right? Like if you imagine a fern blade, it, it goes in a particular direction and there's all these fronds that branch off of it, but they're all, and while they may be separate, they're all the same thing, you know? And I think New Zealand just as a culture of a nation has really done the work to try to honor, you know, the, the Maori and, and, and all the other people that live there. The Maoris are their, their indigenous. indigenous. Yeah. Um, and so going back to the radical idea though, I think rad- being radical, it, it's uh, it's a verb, right? It's an act, and and it's like we say often that perhaps it isn't. This isn't radical. Like I think it's like what you were saying about the your when you were talking about your plant, and when, when I think I've told you like with some plants, like you know, if you overwater it, the roots get oh, man. right. You get like root rot. Oh no. no. Yeah, those are notorious. But being radical, it, which I'm like, how is this radical? You're addressing the problems. And a lot of those problems are deep rooted, like you were saying. And, you know, we got to, you can't just take care of it at the top surface, but you got to get underneath. And, and I think maybe that's the radical part is getting down in the uh, nitty gritty and really uprooting things and seeing what the problem is, even though you're like, I don't want to see this yeah. because it's going to be, it's going to be disheartening. Exactly. Especially when you're so close to uh, that, that specific thing, you know, because mm-hmm. nobody really likes change. Nobody, you know, no, I, I, at least personally, I've never met anyone who's like, yeah, change, unless you're Obama. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you're connected to something and something has worked for so long, in, in a particular way, 
for a t- particular set of people. And then to try to change that, that, that that's where the tension mm-hmm. lies. Right. And I think that's where this idea of radical comes out. And I, and I appreciate that you, you pointed out that it's been co-opted by movements, right? And it, but then that's okay too, because those are, that's the act that it's happened. And whether it's um, on the far left or the far right, there's still these like radical kinds of things. And it, it's interesting. Like I think being walking the tightrope and trying to find a common ground and compromise in itself is also radical because no one wants to compromise. <laughs> but what if, you know, it's, and I think, you know, as I'll put in a little plug for my book, but that's one of the things that I mentioned in can of worms is that education should be radical, that yeah. it, it should constantly encourage children to, um, to think about what's being presented to them in, in the classroom and in the world. Mm-hmm. Cause we know we're, we're developing um, people who are going to be participants in what we hope is a fair and just democratic nation and world at some point. And I guess lastly, the other thing that, that I really liked you pointed out was, you know, closed mouth, don't get fed. Oh. <laughs> and, and I took that as like, what's the worst that can happen if you, when you ask, yeah, someone can just say no. Mm-hmm. Like for me, we like, you know, we're sitting in the classroom that I'm supposed to be like going to be up and running here soon. And like all these like individualized desks, I, all I had to do was like, reach out to somebody at Seattle public schools and be like, Hey, I'm assuming you guys have some extra desks to spare. And we're, we have some of your students that are going to be enrolled here. Do you think we can just have them? And of course I had to go through a bunch of people. Yeah. The bureaucracy of it, but lo and behold, they're like, yeah, we got some, we'll deliver them for you. 8 AM sharp. Like, and you know, but there wasn't, I was kind of like, ah, this is going to be a bother to ask, you know, what am I going to have to do? There's all these what ifs, mm-hmm. right? But I'd rather live by the, the, I guess, like a paradigm of like, why not? And what, what if I do ask? And I think for people of color, there's been a lot of stigma that has been uh, perpetuated historically that discourages us from asking. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think a lot of people of color have a do it yourself, pick yourself up. You're going to do it because no one is going to help you kind of thing. And, and that's something that we heard um, Jen say in our, in the last Napcast, where mm-hmm. we're just so prideful people <laughs> that it, it's hard for us to be like, Hey, we need extra support. And that's why it, it's so important that, you know, why identifying individuals really ask and lean in and, and say, what can I, what can I do that really supports you and really look into our eyes and, and try to have that understanding of where we are through, through, through past trauma, through the epigenetics and uh, work with us because this isn't easy y'all. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it, is definitely, I think, when we look at that historical component of it, you know, when people of color did ask, we were met with violence. Exactly. And so it's, of course, we're going to carry a sense of pride because mm-hmm. like, all right, we didn't ask and we did it on our own. Mm-hmm. And so, and that just kind of keeps going. And I know we've 
we've touched on that in past episodes too. And I think it, even right now in this conversation with Miriam and, and with you right now, it's like ringing extra true for myself. And just a little caveat, you know, when you do ask, you know, don't ask me like, why am I here? Where are you from? Right. That, that's the different type of ask mm. because that, that says to me, Oh, well, you think I don't belong here or I'm out of place, you know, and mm. even being stopped by the cops growing up. The first question to me was always, why are you here? And that's like, I'm like now triggered because I'm, I'm like, oh, that's associated with only bad experience. I mean, they might as well be saying you don't belong here. Exactly. Right. Which I think they were. But. Right. <laughs> so my last question to you is, mm-hmm. what does indigenizing education mean for you? Mm. I, I, it's that it's again it's an act and it's um doing the the reverse of erasure sort of uh curriculum and i think being brutally honest about particular things that we celebrate as a nation mm-hmm. right and, and that you touched on it about like actively not doing christopher columbus day mm-hmm. but then with children at an age appropriate way talking about why are we celebrating Christopher Columbus mm-hmm. and providing um, the, the materials of, and there's books out there and there's information and there's, there are people who have given resources of how to talk about these things in an age appropriate way. And I think just doing it and just shedding the light on to these atrocities mm-hmm. that, that in, indigenous native people have had to go through. And I think, yeah, that's a, that's a good question, though. For me, it's, it's all about giving, because chances are your, your child is going to go through the K-12 system, go through college education if they, if they choose that path, and they're going to be told the lies. They're, going to be, mm-hmm. they're not going to be told the whole truth. And how can we as preschool educators, as educators of young children, as early learning professionals, how can we actively be giving counter-narratives to the master narratives? Mm-hmm. I also think one way that we can do it, and, and, and you mentioned it too, of like, you know, sometimes people think giving a land acknowledgement is the... the End-all be-all. End-all be-all. Mm-hmm. As superficial as it may be or whatever, what if that was just a normal practice in every K through 12? Yeah. Like, and I would challenge any school, any district to be like, there were no native people on this land. <laughs> I would love, I, I mean, I, I don't know what I would do if it was like true, but chances are wherever you live, there were thousands of generations before you. Yeah. And so what if that was just a, a common practice just as like, you know, the pledge of allegiance. Exactly. I say get rid of that, but I don't even know why we're still doing that. Yeah. But that's I think it's optional yeah, in some places. That might be too political. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think what if we even altered the Pledge of Allegiance mm. that like somewhere in there this nation I don't know, you know, where you just like <laughs> in, like kind of interject some like Acknowledging the indigenous people. We're, we're pissing people off. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's best to be pissed off than pissed on people. That's true. 
just ask. <laughs> no, I won't go there. <laughs> All right. Well, no, I I appreciate. It. I love getting the chance to do this with you. I I don't even need to talk. You just you go off and you do your thing, and you know, dropping wisdom and words and advice to these people. Oh, likewise, Mike. I mean, that's why I was like hard, you know, listening to it and being like, well, what am I going to say? You know, like Mike's already done it, but we got, we got that good back and forth. Hey, and good news uh, for your scholarship. We're actually up to 15,000. Yeah. So in four weeks, we raised $15,000 for the Nick Torona scholarship. Nice. You know, four weeks. Yeah. So in case you still has it been four weeks, I feel like maybe done like five. Maybe but, five, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, somewhere around there. So if anyone's listening and you still want to contribute to a scholarship that provides um, access and breaks down barriers for indigenous or Latinx identified children and families, visit us at www.hilltopcc.com backslash Nick. That's N-I-C-K. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Until next time. (laughs)